AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Stan, as our resident malware analyst, it seems like you've always find interesting bits of malware to look at. And it sounds like there's a really interesting one that's just come out. So what can you tell us about it? Yes. Actually, it's a story you helped point me to uh, in Ars Technica, summarizing uh, an adversary group called Platinum. Now, no one knows where Platinum hails from, uh, but um, they were first covered, I believe, by Microsoft in a very pretty amazing and detailed write-up maybe in 2016. Uh, well, now Kaspersky has attributed some new malware called Titanium uh, to this Platinum uh, APT group. Uh, so, what's so special about this Platinum malware? Uh, one, of the three, uh, one of the things I find very special uh, about this malware is just how complicated and intricate it is. So the malware authors have figured out how to split each part of the infection into separate components. Each component by itself, you could say, is not really malware. It just launches the next uh, component in the chain. So some um, like AV vendors may classify it or misclassify it or not classify that piece uh, as malware or as anything malicious at all. It might just be like a downloader or uh, something that makes DVDs or something like that. Uh, but they've combined all of these different pieces. And with these different pieces, um, have pretty much uh, created a pretty complicated C2 infrastructure for um, uh, getting commands uh, with lots of like encryption and making sure that you know the password and everything like that. Like security researchers can't figure that out. Uh, and then you get a picture. And inside the picture are hidden commands for what to do. And what to do is very simple. It's actually very uh, usual things uh, for a Trojan, and they do it in the same, you know, they can have similar functionalities. Actually, this ours technical article uh, pretty much outlines it. You know, getting files, uploading files, executing commands. It's probably used in some sort of operations. Now, what I think both Kaspersky and Microsoft have highlighted is that this Platinum group, the group that employs the Citanium malware, uh, they seem to be targeting a very specific region um, so Southeast Asia, um, apparently they use a lot of uh, different lures uh, that have to do with politics in the area uh, that would probably appeal to people in that region. Uh, and one other very interesting thing about this Platinum APT group is they have access to a lot of zero days. So a lot of things that they're deploying are basically previously unpatched vulnerabilities. That was true in 2016 and it but seems But not like just unpatched, like unannounced. Unannounced, yeah. that's right. Things Unknown. Unknown, exactly. That's a very, very important point. Um, so that makes them highly capable, obviously, of being able to um, discover all these vulnerabilities. But also, it seems like um, highly organized in order to be able to know the right capability to use at which time, not using it uh, before it's ready to be used, uh, kind of holding things back. So it's not like a regular hacker who might go and say, hey, look what I found or a regular security researcher. These guys are looking for these vulnerabilities, it may appear. When someone puts a huge amount of engineering effort into malware, uh, it stands sort of above and beyond the stuff that I commonly see. So it's interesting, and you learn a little bit every time you see something like this. Uh, they're kind of burning their tricks at that point. If someone takes it apart um, and learns all those tricks, you can defend against it, you can kind of get ahead of the game, because eventually a lot of these more sophisticated tricks get rolled into more commodity malware. 
Uh, so you see something like this, it may not be targeting you, but you're learning something about what is possible. I think one of the things that resonated the most with me about how complicated this is, is a line from the Kaspersky write-up that basically says, hey, we couldn't even figure out how the shell code, the original shell code, uh, started execution. Wow. So it shows you how complicated it is. I know Kaspersky is actually uh, very good at what they do in terms of reverse engineering and being able to get to the root cause. So for them to say something like that after having uh, uh, analyzed the piece of malware, I think that's telling and that's revealing of just um, how dedicated this platinum adversary is. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like highly resourced, lots of technical skills, willing to burn multiple zero days in a single backdoor, uh, nation state or at least someone with a significant budget and, and staffing? Uh, definitely. I mean, who knows uh, if it's nation state or not, uh, but definitely it's a persistent group. They keep going after uh, specific areas uh, that they're interested in. Um, and uh, at least according to you know, Microsoft and Kaspersky, it doesn't seem like they're very well detected, uh, probably because they have these uh, separate components. Um, so it's likely that they'll be around for a while, um, just how APT groups are, very persistent okay. and very advanced. Yeah. The other question I wanted to ask is, you were talking earlier about the malware itself being broken into individual components, no one of which is sketchy enough to be detected as malware. And that sounds to me like they're trying to evade some sort of risk-based ba risk scoring or like heuristics, so that if you're scanning with your, your malware engine, it's something they've never seen before, they'll take certain components of it and say, well, it uses these following libraries, and it touches a file on disk in this way, and it does this thing, and it reaches out to this thing. And they sum those up and say, okay, at this point, there's a threshold, and I say, yeah, malicious or not malicious. But I don't think they would ever do it in conjunction with like three or four different processes running at once. Right? I think uh, the bad guys have figured out how a lot of different detection capabilities work, and it's exactly what you say. Mm -hmm. You know, when you take one sample and you run it through, just like you said, Matt, um, it'll find all these heuristics and say, yep, they're all bad together. But if you start taking those and splitting them up into separate executables, separate pieces, um, then it can create, um, I guess, it, it won't let the score be added up. Um, and again, the same thing with even the forensics. You know, if you found something and it looks kind of sketchy, but you're not sure, the software is kind of pretending to be possibly legitimate. It by itself is not doing anything. In fact, some of the pieces are like encrypted, so you can't even open them unless you have the previous component. So if you haven't found the previous component, um, you know, having access to this one won't help you. In this case, don't get the malware. And how you don't get the malware is you don't click on suspicious links, malicious links through email, because that's typically how sophisticated malware like this is going to be delivered. Don't go to suspicious websites and download things and run them on your computer. That would be the, your best bet. So Andy, I hear you have a very interesting story about something made in America. Supposed to be made in America. OK. This is a, this is a story you don't usually hear about. Comes around every now and again. And I think it'll, it should end up as a Netflix series one day. It should. That's just my opinion. But the story is that sometime last year, uh, an Air Force serviceman noticed a Chinese character on the screen, on the built-in screen of a, of a body cam. Now, the gear that our US military is, is supposed to use is supposed to be made in America for obvious reasons, security and otherwise. So what they did is he reported that, or they reported the, the issue. And Forensics was able to find three images on the, in the firmware of this device. One of the images was the US Air Force image. One of the images. Like the logo for the Air Force. The logo for the Air Force. 
the logo for the company that allegedly manufactured the device, and then the logo for the uh, Chinese Public Security Ministry or something. That's what it is. Oh, no. Oh, well, what's interesting about that, though, is the three images, Forensics was able to find that all three were written at the same time, and they were all written with a machine that was set to a Chinese time zone. So this strongly indicates both that it was manufactured in China, but also that it was manufactured in China with the intent to be delivered to the United States Air Force. So that's kind of a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and the obvious question that, that you should be asking is how did this happen? Is this an accident? Is this a situation where somebody's going to come up and say, oh, you got the wrong box. Sorry, here's the right one. Um, unfortunately, it's not the case. So what federal investigators have found was the company that provided those body cams to the United States Air Force, a New York-based company called Aventura, has act had actually been fraudulently delivering their products, which are marketed as made in America, but were really created in China uh, fraudulently to different U.S. customers, including the United States government, all three branches, which is a bummer. Uh, even more crazier than that is they found that this company has been doing this for over a decade, which is kind of crazy. So um, to add to the boldness of this story, uh, investigators found that the, the people responsible, the executives for Aventura, went, went to great lengths to hide the fact that they were actually delivering Chinese-made products and then slapping Made in America stickers on them. So there's, there's email correspondence between Aventura executives and Chinese manufacturing people discussing strategies and methods on how to remove Chinese artifacts from things like the operating system, the firmware, um, packaging material, uh, and, and the like. Um, but apparently they weren't very good at it because in one instance, uh, a, a sample product was delivered to a prospective client and the manual inside that came with that was actually in Chinese. So that's kind of a big major slip up there. Yeah, it's a tell. Yeah. <laughs> A kind of a big tell, kind of a kind of a big tell. Unfortunately, there's more aspects to this. So what's kind of crazy is is the owner of the company, uh, the de facto owner of the company, uh, a guy named Jack Jack Cabasso. Last year, he actually sent an email to a government employee citing that 12 of his competitors, of Aventura's competitors, um, were breaking the Trade Agreement Act, which is the law that prevents U.S. companies or U.S. federal agencies from using. Um, devices manufacturing, manufactured in different com uh, countries, like China. Mm -hmm. um, he actually alleged that his uh, competition was actually doing just that, and he expressed concern that there were major security concerns for the U.S. government using products that were manufactured in China, something that his company was allegedly doing at the time. So that's pretty bold. That's a pretty bold thing to do. But um, of course, they were caught. Six executives for the company Aventura had, was actually, were actually arrested uh, on these charges. Um, the charges go even further. There was some money laundering involved, so there was money that was going through different shell companies um, that the, the Jack Cabasso and his wife were using um, that would in turn come back to them financially. Um, there, was, there was a whole line about a, a yacht that was technically owned by the company that would be rented out and the proceeds would go directly to their personal accounts. Um, the shell companies were used to purchase houses for relatives of the of, of at least the Jack Cabasso and his wife, which is kind of nuts. Um, but they're caught, which is great. But I think this speaks to a larger issue, and the larger issue here is supply chain security, yep. because in this case it happened, and it was caught because someone just by chance noticed a little 
a little icon, a little Chinese icon or, or letter or whatever it was on a screen, how do you prevent it from even getting there? Because it, at that point, you've already failed from a, from a supply chain security perspective. Mm -hmm. So what do you do to prevent getting there entirely is the larger concern. Security is everyone's responsibility, and even someone who's not directly responsible for security can have an impact on it. So if you have a question about something like that, or you have a concern, and you have a way of reporting it, uh, that means that in general, we can find these kind of problems faster. So if, you're, if you don't have a, a good reporting chain for people who are just lay folks who aren't security responsible, if you don't give them a way to report problems like that, you're doing yourself a disservice. Give them a contact where they can at least ask questions. I think for vendor security, one of the things to consider sometimes is with the smaller companies just vetting them out to make sure they can actually deliver on the promises uh, that they're kind of stating that they can deliver on. Because usually with these things, you know, there's probably a couple of different people bidding for contracts uh, to deliver cameras or whatever it might be, some product. And just making sure that that contractor has the actual capacity uh, to deliver that, that they're not coming in way below the bid, uh, and, because that might be a signal that something might be wrong, yeah. that they're undercutting the competition so much that it's just impractical that, you know, what are they doing? What secret have they discovered that the other manufacturers have not? Um, and of course, visiting the actual headquarters or the actual manufacturing facilities, sometimes if it's practical, for a large car contract, I think is important. Uh, so you could see that, hey, they're really doing this and they're really doing it here. I did want to point out that it's, it's unclear what the standard procedures are for vetting a, a security or a vendor. It, it, the article doesn't go into exactly what the government does to make sure that they can actually deliver the products that they're offering. But the article does go into the, the company Aventura was actually um, someone had actually contacted them and, and asked them for proof and verification that you know, your products are actually made in America. And one of the things that the de facto owner provided was a photo of Aventura's manufacturing plant in Long Island, New York, where the company is based. And in fact, the photo actually came from an article four years prior of a manufacturing plant that was actually in China. So, no. so to your point, Stan, it needs to be more than just, you know, can you send me something to verify? You called it, it needs to be a site visit. You need to evaluate volumes and, and kind of go a little deeper. Supply chain security is as important as it's ever been. So it's very important that you, you vet the vendors that you're, you're going with. And if, you know, if they say it's American made, verify um, that they're actually doing what they say they're doing. So it's the old adage, the uh, trust but verify, I think is, uh, it applies here. So Matt, I hear you have a Blue Keep story for us. <laughs> it's kind of a Blue Keep story. It's kind of uh, a meltdown story. And it's also kind of a Metasploit story. Uh, so in the last couple of weeks or so, there's been uh, an increase in scanning in Blue Keep. This half of this year, we've been talking about Blue Keep. We've been waiting for the other shoe to drop on people actually using it for like a worm or something crazy. Yeah. And as it turns out, in the last couple of weeks, people who are running honeypots, in particular, there's a guy um, Kevin Beaumont, pretty well known on Twitter, who has been reporting that his, all of his um, honeypots have been crashing. Oh no. Yes, and uh, they have been, uh, they're wait waiting for the Blue Keep uh, exploit, apparently. Um, so people are starting to look into why are, they, why are they crashing. Like scanning and exploitation we understand, but why are they crashing? And as it turns out, the guy who wrote the Metasploit module to attack Blue Keep, which is the one that's getting used right now in all sorts of 
you know, crypto mining operations. People will use the exploit, get on the box, install crypto miner, right? The environment in which you developed it wasn't patched for Meltdown. Now, Meltdown is a speculative execution bug from like 2018, 2017. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's not really old news, but uh, it's certainly not new news anymore. No. And as it is big news. And as it turns out, the mitigation that they put in place um, is not something that the developer, developers of Metasploit tested with. So when you put these two things together, um, when you end up crashing that system. Uh, and it turns out this, this kernel virtual address shadow, KVA shadow, is the mitigation they put in place. And, and it is much more complicated than even I can express correctly. And the guy who, who found the bug actually did a nice write-up about it. But as it turns out, what they're doing is they're protecting uh, certain memory from user land. So like you can, you can access certain kernel functions, but not all of them. And that's, that's a very good thing that that's possible. Uh, but the code that they wrote in order to exploit uh, Bluekeep doesn't account for that. Uh, so the code gets into an infinite loop, and eventually that process comes down. And I think because we're working in the kernel space, that means everything goes down, I think. Makes sense. It makes sense. OK, good. What's going to have to happen now, and it seems like a weird thing to say, is that we've got this problem, and the solution is to update the Metasploit uh, exploit to make it more correct. Right? Because That's a weird sentence. <laughs> it's a weird sentence, because you're like, but wait, you know, I realize people use Metasploit for very good reasons in pen testing, yeah. but then again, bad guys take the Metasploit modules, drop it into their malware, and use it for bad. So do you want a working exploit that everyone can use, or do you want an exploit that doesn't always work? That also crashes things, right? So it's a weird space to be to saying what should be done in general. Yeah, they should fix the module, because at least you, haven't, you won't have widespread internet uh, machines getting crashed, even when they're patched. I think that's the big thing, is that even when you do the right thing and your machine is patched, you're still vulnerable because of the way that the Metasploit module was written. And it's not your fault, yeah. but you're still vulnerable. So the trouble is, when you've patched for Meltdown, then the module will actually crash your system. So that's certainly a lot better than if you're not patched for Meltdown, uh, and then you know the, the module actually is able to exploit your system successfully, um, but crashing it is is still a pretty bad thing. I think the best thing for people is to not have um, RDP exposed to the <laughs> that, internet. Yes, that's, and that's that's <laughs> I where I was going next. <laughs> I think that's the root of the problem for right. sure. So if you can take it offline, absolutely, make but, sure it's but, offline. But there are legitimate purposes for remote desktop services. So, yeah, uh, there are. Uh, I personally am of the opinion that. People exposing things like RDP should also have a layer of VPN around the outside. Yeah, um, agreed. Just that way, it's not like a couple packets in your your toast. Yeah, you still have to get past that outer. Yeah. Not outer a layer. door. Just you can also have thing. access control lists, firewall entries to allow only specific blocks to be able to enter. Mm -hmm. Even if you're getting your IP address from, let's say, your ISP, they usually have a range of DHCP addresses that they allow in. So you might allow those in, or yeah. there might be other protections. Yeah. You, you and I, I keep thinking back to a couple years back, we were talking more about like ATM malware, uh, or RDP into like a, a restaurant system, where someone right. is managing a restaurant remotely, right. and they're all using RDP for that. And it's not always a very sophisticated setup. Like it might just be, we put a box on the internet, and we opened up RDP because that's what we needed. You know. So yeah, there's, there's always ways to protect against this sort of stuff. Um, some more involved than others, but you know, generally, the more involved, the better. The more layered, probably. That's probably a better way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the more, more layered, layered, the better. It does not make it complex for the sake of complexity. Yes. We're not going to build a, you know, a labyrinth just because we think it makes it a little more hard. Vulnerability researchers are always impress me. 
Yeah. Um, I believe this specific vulnerability, the way to exploit it is like a use after free or something like that, which by itself is really uh, esoteric to try to figure out, like how do you actually exploit that? So uh, kudos to the researcher who wrote the module. Um, but then the fact that bad guys are able to just take it and crash a bunch of computers, well, maybe that's a wake-up call to some, uh, to some admins to say, hey, why is my machine crashing? Maybe is everything up to date? Even if they don't realize that um, you know, there's this vulnerability going on out there, perhaps it will trigger something to say, hey, my hardware is out of date or my software is out of date. Maybe I should just patch this whole thing well, or but, come up with a different scheme. But on the, on the, the flip side, this is happening regardless like, if you're patched correctly. Like you're doing the right thing, and then the exploit comes by and still manages to crash you. Is it the the meltdown patch and the so are you supposed to be patched for meltdown and for blue keep and you it should. still happens? That's yeah. Um, or is it that if you're just patched for one and not the other, you get the crash? Do you, do you recall? So my understanding is when the guy wrote the vulner when the guy wrote the exploit, he tested it. It was a successful exploit against the blue keep vulnerability in an environment that was not patched for meltdown or meltdown when you patch for meltdown and you patch for blue keep it still crashes. that's when you crash if you're not patched for meltdown the exploit code works without side effects and if we're having this much trouble right <laughs> it is a little confusing it is a little okay. confusing so then you know imagine what it is out there um, so again, I, you know, this is why I think we have to depend on layered security yeah. always. And I, I would never say to somebody, don't patch because of this. I would say patch and keep an eye on stuff and close your darn ports if you don't need them open. Yeah. I mean, minimize the effect that you possibly can have. As always, you know, you should patch your systems. But I think the, the real issue here is going to be uh, exposing RDP to the internet, which is almost never a good idea. You know, RDP over the internet can be useful, you know, for obviously for remote administration, but leaving a, a RDP services just sitting on the internet is not generally a good idea. You want to put it behind, you know, an access control list, you know, put it around VPN or something. Something, some sort of mitigating steps to disallow any, anybody on the internet to knock on the door, so to speak, of your remote desktop. Let's take a look at this week's internet weather. So these are the top 10 most probed ports. Uh, for yesterday and then the 11th. So got a bunch of stuff that all shifted up together. So 23 TCP is Telnet, 1433 MS SQL server, uh, 445 is SMB, which has been up there forever. Um, 80 ICMP is ping. 8545 TCP is Ethereum GF server. Um, there was a bug in that for a while. So people were trying to get uh, free internet money. Uh, 3389 TCP is remote desktop protocol. Uh, ATCP is the web in general, could be anything. Uh, 22 TCP is SSH, 8080 TCP is an alternate web port, and 5555 is Android Remote Debug Bridge. Uh, take a look at the most sources probing. So this is individual endpoints, and not um, not the, the ports, not the, the volume of scanning itself. Uh, not a lot of changes this week. So 445 has stayed in the top of that 23, 1433, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, and 55, In fact, we've spoken about literally all of these except for 00 ICMP, which is echo reply, which is uh, kind of interesting, um, but probably a side effect of the massive amounts of 80 ICMP echo request. So we did have a uptick on port 23 TCP Telnet. Um, there's a 30-day view, and you can see that there's actually it peaked out around 1.5 billion, yeah. Scan sources, scan flows per hour. 
which is really something. Unfortunately, I did not have the data on the sources for these. Um, but when you see a change like that, it's typically because of a botnet. It's not necessarily true, but that's quite a jump to make for a small handful of bots. So I would say that this is either another botnet or a botnet that got retasked to something else. Uh, 1433 has just simply stayed high. It's actually trending downwards slightly. You can see a it might be a, maybe not a daily cycle, but a regular cycle of peaks and valleys there. And again, that's a 30-day view. Uh, 8545, it looks like you've got like a regular on-off pattern. It's actually every couple hours or so, because you can see the, those, those gray lines indicate a two-day period, the vertical ones. So it's going up and down several times a day. So it's some sort of schedule, but it's not like a daily cycle. We used to see when WannaCry was, was prevalent, 445. Uh, you would see that as you know, PCs are turned on and off all day long. You start seeing that because... But um, yeah. Uh, this was an interesting one, uh, Realtek. Uh, Realtek UPnP over SOAP is a bug from 2014, and recently we've seen some major spikes on that. We saw one at the end of October, um, and we just saw another one in the last couple of days, a much smaller spike. The sources for that spike, the most recent, are Singapore, US, and China. But some of these are, um, what would you call it, like cloud hosting providers. So. Um, it's very interesting you'd see a cloud hosting provider scanning for something like that. I would more likely, I would expect to see a botnet of IoT devices scanning for this port, but the scanning and exploitation has to start somewhere. So there may be a seed population scanning for it, or there may be researchers using a cloud platform to do research on this particular vulnerability and its prevalence. Years after the fact. <laughs> Years after the fact but is prevalence, right. prevalence, yeah. yeah. And this was an interesting one. It did not show up in the top 10, uh, but it did show up on our list. Port 50802 TCP, and the only reference I could find to this port was an Avaya IP office suite. And I believe it has something to do with SIP phones. I didn't get to go too deep into it, but we have seen some activity on that in the past couple of days. So um, something to keep an eye on. Sometimes you'll see scanning for a specific unique port where a vulnerability does not exist, but it's used as a tip-off that if this port is open and responds a certain way, I can then pivot to you know, SSH and use a certain username and password pair. And we've seen that with some of the, um, the Mirai likes, or um, what's the other one that's not like, it's, it's Mike Mirai, but not. There's uh, so many of them. Yeah. Hajime, or yeah. Yeah, a couple others. Satori. And Satori, all yeah. Some of those will use a technique like that, where they'll, they'll try and cut down the amount of scanning time. So instead of having to sit there and brute force a whole bunch of SSH creds, they'll find some other indicator and then use that and jump right in and try the, the creds that are most likely right on the first try. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.